Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice All right, we are going live and welcome anybody that's listening and coming in here. I'm going to just check a couple of things. It's going to be a powerful evening um, for folks that might be just joining or listening to this afterwards. This was a little bit spontaneous, but we realized that it is the 20th anniversary of the what was called the shock and awe campaign, the, um, one of the most aggressive bombing campaigns in, in history. And this is the 20th anniversary. That was in March of 2003. And so my friend Diana Ostrike and I get to do all this great work at Red Letter Christians together. But we also were navigating this in two really different ways. And um, it, it just felt like the, the spirit's alignment of things to uh, give us a, a little time to reflect back. And part of why we're looking back is to um, try to make sure that we learn from the past so we don't we don't. Uh, allow things like this to happen again. So Diana, you can say hi to everybody while I make sure that everything's good on the, uh, on the social, social channels. Yeah. Shane is, is going to rock it, you guys, but I just want to welcome you and say thank you so much for joining us because um, it's the 20th anniversary of the bombing. And it really was the preemptive strike. It's really where America hadn't declared war in Iraq, but they had shipped a hundred thousand troops over there. Um, and started the bombing campaign. And so as peacemakers and as people who are looking to interrupt violence and create the peace that God envisions, um, this is one that we want to hold and we want to bear witness um, to the lives that it that it took um, and bear witness. Even you might even want to think about where you were at when you first saw it, um, because a lot of the bombing was televised. Um, people saw it on TV. So we're just going to take tonight and we're going to, uh, Shane is going to share a little bit about um, his witness and what he was witnessing and where he was at, kind of his um, intention and locality, because <laughs> we all have identities and conflicts of where we're coming from. And then I'm going to also share mine as a combat soldier who was deployed as part of the preemptive strike. Mm. So, and I'm sure many of you will be watching this afterwards, but um, just to, you know, I'm dying out with people all the time that um, we're not alive in 2003 or for September, <laughs> September 11th. It's wild that that happens, but we're getting old. But just to, to set the context a little bit. Um, so right after September 11th, I feel like a lot of folks were trying to figure out what to do with their anger at the 3,000, more than 3,000 lives that were lost um, in this terrible act of hatred. Um, and um, the fear, the um, 
the grief, right? People were trying to figure out what to do with all that. And, and um, I remember in Philadelphia, Diana, someone hung a banner that said, let, let's kill them all and let God sort them out. So there were those really terrible expressions, a lot of anti-Islamic uh, um, uh, hatred that was out there. Um, but there were also beautiful things that happened. And one of those that I first heard about was family members who had lost their loved ones in September 11th, their immediate loved ones, like husbands, wives, children, mothers and fathers. And they got together as a support group originally to grieve um, and then as they began to see the response of the U.S. in the bombing and the war, their whole prayer became, our grief is not a cry for war. Please don't kill in the name of our loved ones. Uh, and it was so powerful. They went on delegations to Iraq and Afghanistan and came back with these with presents from Iraqi families to give to the, the victims of 9-11. And it just it looked like Jesus. It looked like the stuff that heals the, the violence. But then we began to see the response of um, the U.S. government, which um, was the shock, what, what became known as the shock and awe campaign. So um, on March 19th of 2003, the U.S. launched this bombing campaign. And I'll tell you a little bit about, you know, we were in Iraq. I was there with dozens and dozens of other folks. But um, this bombing campaign was was one of the, the uh, most aggressive campaigns in history. It was like nine, over 900 bombs a day that were being dropped um, largely in Baghdad and in Iraq while we were there. Um, and the um, the war-related deaths from the, the invasion and bombing, they, they range. It's hard to calculate all that, but it's in the hundreds of thousands. Some estimates go up to uh, a million lives, at least um, 600,000 lives that were lost. And Thousands and thousands of those were civilians and children's that children that were killed in that initial bombing. But this is what's also important: is that the war in Iraq uh, is the most protested war in history. Thirty-six million people across the globe were in the streets protesting um, this this bombing. There were like. 3,000 protests all over the world, 3 million people gathered in Rome alone to stand against the war. So it's literally in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most protested war um, in history. And some of that's because of social media and everything else, but it was powerful to see the world stand against this war. And the way that um, I and several other dear friends discerned to protest the war was to join some of those delegations going to Iraq. And Diane is going to tell, you know, kind of in a minute where she was at navigating this. But it's one of those things that I had a friend, Kathy Kelly, that called me and she's um, organized so many, like dozens and dozens of delegations over the years to conflict zones and especially to Iraq before the war and the sanctions and to kind of document what was happening to the Iraqi people. So she called me and, you know, she's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. She's like one of my heroes. So when she called me and she said, you know, would you consider um, being a part of a delegation? I said, well, this is obviously something I need to pray about and talk to my mother about. 
<laughs> and, um, but I'm, I'm very interested. So, I, and it was one of those things, Diana, for me, it was like one of the clearest discernments. I had a little group of about a dozen friends that prayed with me and we talked through like scenarios. How are we going to do this? You know, what, what are in, in any way, it just felt so clear. And so, uh, we went and, the group that I went with was a combination of different groups together. And that was what part of what made it so beautiful is we uh, we had the Christian peacemaker teams, which was founded on the principle that we need to get in the way of violence, that that's what Jesus, the Prince of Peace, was doing. Uh, he, you know, um, put violence on display to subvert it um, with love and forgiveness and an empty tomb. And that's, you know, the model that we're after. So the founder, you know, the founding of Christian peacemaker teams was basically like, do we believe that the cross is an alternative to the sword? Are we willing to, um, to risk our lives, loving our enemies, just as people are risking their lives for this war and the bombing. And so I was there with, uh, um, there were school teachers and grandmothers and we had medical folks. So there were doctors and nurses and we actually took medication into Iraq, which was illegal. It was technically illegal to, it was a violation of the U.S. sanctions to take medicine into Iraq. So we knew that we were risking possibly 15 years in prison just with that act. But we, you know, we felt so compelled to do it. So we went and we had veterans, uh, Diana, we had um, Charlie Litke, who was one of the most decorated veterans in the U.S. at the time he passed away. God rest his soul. But he was an amazing man. When they, when they made the movie Forrest Gump, they dubbed over Charlie um, to put, Tom Hanks in. Um, so, but there were um, pastors and priests and we were there to stand against the war. And I'll tell you a little bit more of that. I've actually brought pictures and everything tonight because, and some of them are hard, but some of them are beautiful, but I want to, um, I want to, you know, invite you, Diana, to share a little of your story and, you know, where, what, what you, what was going on in your life? Cause you were seeing a totally different side of this. And it's so important, you know, that, that, People are all trying to navigate this in different spaces. So it's good to do this together. Yeah. So thank you for doing this with me, Shane, because I I just want people to know on the front end um, that wherever you are at and whoever you love, um, more than protesting a war, I think that uh, Shane is talking about life and preserving life. Um, and that life goes everywhere. It wasn't just Iraqi's life, but when a war happens, it decimates generations. Um, so, so I, I was 23, as Shane said, some of y'all might, uh, might be a little young, but I was 23 years old and I was part of the military. I was going to school and I got called up. Um, and so, and I had gotten the call that said in 30 days, you know, report, and we can't tell you where you're going, how long you'll be there or when you'll be back. Mm. And so I was, doing all the training and we had our date that we were supposed to fly over there. And at the same time, um, we were seeing bombs drop on TV. And so even though our unit wasn't telling us where we were going, it didn't take a rocket scientist to, uh, to put two and two together. So I was a combat medic and I was part of an engineering battalion, but we were national guard. And so most of the, the older fellas, like, they were maybe Vietnam, maybe tail end, but they were like, no, we don't go places like that. Like we're a state run militia. We haven't gotten called up since like 30 years ago, like the Vietnam war. So this was like unprecedented. 
like nobody could even fathom that they were really going to send a whole bunch of like, you know, National Guard, 18, 19 year olds to war. Um, But they did. And so I describe what it felt like to fly into a war zone of physically what that feels like, because at the time um, we thought there were going to be weapons of mass destruction and that was chemical warfare. So wearing a gas mask in the heat and not knowing if you were going to start to see what chemical weapons warfare does, which I was a medic. So I knew um, that there was no chance. Like that is one of the most cruel, torturous, illegal ways um, to harm people. So I describe it in the first couple pages of my book, which is um, that just allows people to know like how terrifying it is. And it's not, it's not the movies. And I, and I was a Christian. I, I'm a third generation army veteran. I thought um, I was absolutely being called up in a way to serve my country, in a way to serve God, in a way to um, be putting good. We were the good guys. Um, so when I got there, it was not what I expected. And so Shane was there uh, protesting the war and looking to save lives. And I think I was, um, you know, at 23, you think, you know, everything, but I was hundred percent young and dumb. Like none of what I knew was matching what I was experiencing as, as a soldier being deployed in middle of that preemptive strike where, like I said, hundreds of thousands of soldiers were just flooding into the country. Mm. And I think, it, you know, as we're having this conversation tonight, I'm reminded of all the folks that have been impacted by this. And um, to be anti-war is not to be anti-veteran. And, and it's to see that those that are um, often a part of the apparatus of war end up suffering a different kind of injury. I mean, sometimes they're actually physically injured, but there's a moral injury. There's an injury of conscience that happens. And I, I know so many folks actually back in Philadelphia, I'm, I'm on the road speaking right now, but back in Philadelphia, I have a bunch of dog tags that the um, identification tags from the military that folks gave me, Diana, I think I've shown them to you before that, that they said, you know, for different reasons, they began to become conscientious objectors to war. They began to stand against the war. And some of them faced the possibility of jail time, that, you know, all kinds of repercussions from it. But I remember one of them said, um, I went over to Iraq because I wanted to get rid of terrorism, but I felt like we were creating it, um, that we were actually fueling the hatred. Um, and then, you know, now we look back and these, you know, the, the 20 year olds that are listening in, it, 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 they're baffled because we now know that, you know, almost all of the folks that hijacked the planes responsible for 9-11 were, they were from Saudi Arabia. None of them were from Iraq. 15 yet, out of, I think 15 out of 15. Out of, right. Yeah. It, I mean, but, it was like, <laughs> and we're still, and we're still selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, one of the biggest purchasers of weapons. And yet, like, we decimated the country of Iraq. And when I got there, some of the older Iraqi folks told me this, um, Diana, they said, um, they said, uh, you know, we lived through the Iran-Contra scandal. We saw your government help put Saddam Hussein in power. And in fact, the U.S. was making money off of arming two different countries as they fought each other, like literally making money off of death. And um, and 
this Iraqi friend of mine, he said, you know that Saddam Hussein has some weapons because you have the receipts. Literally, the Bell helicopters that were used and the terrible things that Saddam Hussein did, you know, the gassing of the Kurds and these terrible uh, things, they, they, the weapons were given from the United States. So it became very confusing. And I remember another thing I learned in Iraq, Diana, was as we were driving by the U.S. military base, my friend said, do you know what Al-Qaeda means? And I said, actually, I don't. I just I, I hear it all the time. I don't know what it means. He said in Arabic. It means the base. And he said, so isn't it ironic and deep that just as you call the extremists Al-Qaeda, our language for the U.S. military base would be Al-Qaeda, the base, the military base. And he said, I'm not equating those or trying, but he said, the Iraqi people have suffered so deeply from violence from your government and from our government and extremists as well. And so he said, violence is the enemy of the people. It's destroying the people because the people just continue to suffer. So I'll never forget that. Yeah, I think that's like so hard. I feel like these are the things that we have to hold is that this isn't a political question of or like a quarterbacking, like should should America have gone to war or not? Um, We want like. The answer is no, (laughs) all the, we know that, but what is greater is that the violence that has been unleashed and is ricocheting throughout Iraq for 20 years to their children, to their futures, um, and then also throughout um, veterans' lives. I mean, they say that between like 1.8 and 3 million uh, soldiers have served in Iraq or Afghanistan. And so this war on terror, I feel like what I want people to hear again and again is it is to support veterans is we get in front of the violence that is harming them and sending almost 3 million soldiers like myself and people who are even younger than me into a war zone, into violence, Mm. um, that has a harm that is part of why I think we need to remember it so that we will fight harder when the next war comes. Because I was trained as a nurse and there's like the five stages of grief. And I truly mm. believe, and for all those who weren't really aware before 9-11, I truly believe that when 9-11 happened, we got stuck in the second stage of grief and we haven't moved on. And so there's denial, mm. which was, I can't believe it. And then the second one is anger. And the response as a nation, as a Christian nation, was anger. It was Afghanistan and it was Iraq. And, and, and I think the, like, t- the harm against our Muslim neighbors was just instigated and inflamed when we invaded Iraq. And my friends are still experiencing it today with their kids, with their families, this um, us versus them mm with the Islamophobia that we see. But I do, since it is the anniversary, I do want to um, tell you just like three numbers about um, veterans, because even those who are put in violence or who are perpetrating violence, it always harms us. Mm. Like it always harms us, which I think is why Jesus told us to lay down the sword um, because he loves us that much. So, um, so the numbers are that over four, 1,487 American soldiers were killed 
32,000 were wounded, were wounded. And like you said, almost 700,000 Iraqi civilians, kids, teenagers, moms, grandmas um, were killed. And so over 45% of all the veterans who served say that they are disabled from their service. Mm. So I just think 20 years, um, that violence is still harming the people that we love and the veterans mm. that you know. Um, and 1.8 million have a formally documented disability. Mm. So, um, and, yeah. and like, it's hard to get it documented. And I'm, I've gone through the process myself and it took like two years. So I just, and they also said that four times as many soldiers have died by suicide than combat. Yeah. That, I mean, that's such an important one, too, that, you know, it, it's almost every hour that a, a, a veteran or soldier takes their life. And it's the number one cause of death of veterans and soldiers is not combat, but it is suicide, more dying from their own guns than from enemy combatant guns. So it does so much damage. And one of the the first places I spoke, Diana, when I got back, and by the way, in just a second, I'm going to show a few pictures yeah. that I brought. But when I got back from Iraq, I went to uh, Liberty University, uh, the school founded by the Reverend Jerry Falwell. And, you know, I was a little nervous because I, I was there to talk about the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus and the gospel, but I had just gotten back from Iraq. So I knew that I was going to talk about this. And I talked about it. You know, I, I preached, uh, blessed are the peacemakers for they are the, you know, they are the children of God. And then I was a little, you know, I didn't know what the response would be. And Diana, the one of the first people that beelined up, and I could tell that they wanted to talk to me, they kind of pushed through the crowd. They came up and they said, as you were in Iraq and the stories you told about the bombing, you said, I was on the other side. I was dropping the bombs. And he said, I know how many people we killed because we got reports about it. And, um, and he said, I've been carrying that with me. Um, and it's a really heavy weight. And we prayed together um, for the healing of his heart, but the healing of Iraq as well. And uh, it caused me to, um, not see this as an, you know, that, that, that there's people suffering on both sides of the gun and both sides of the bomb. And I certainly saw a piece of that. And you've seen a piece of that. That's why it's really powerful and, to be together. And it's also, it's a story that I hear when I share my story of um, going to war, a soldier and really having God interrupt this, this narrative that I learned and have and lay down my weapon. I hear veterans, they sneak up to me quite often and they're like, Hey, I heard the same thing too. I, you know, one guy was like, I was just walking one day and I just kind of heard this voice say, is this how you're loving your neighbor? And yeah. he's like, I, you know, he's like, I got out as soon as I can. He's, but most veterans will tell me that they don't say anything because they feel like they will not be accepted or have belonging in their places of faith. If they share that, um, that truly like Jesus, the peacemaker, like invited them and they said, yes, like, yeah, peace. When I think I think of Gandhi too, you know, when he said, "If I have to choose between uh, a, uh, a, you know," he, he said, "When I have to, if I have to choose between a soldier and a coward, give me the soldier, uh, because you can't do anything with a coward. But someone who has that zeal and that fire and that courage and that willingness um, uh, to risk." Like that can all be channeled into love. And I see that over and over. I mean, I was just with one of my friends who's a veteran that's doing all kinds of great peacemaking work now. And he says, you want some veterans on your side. We've seen some stuff. And like 
there's a courage and there's, and so that's why like, you know, when we were in Iraq, you know, with these veterans, they're, they're like, nothing's impossible. You know, we ended up having like an encampment outside of a hospital. So if it got bombed, we'd be right there, you know, and they're like the veterans are just so, I think that it's so important to realize that like, as we're seeking Jesus, the question is, what does it look like to yeah. love in the face of evil, to love in the face of violence? And so and I is it okay it, if I, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. And then I'm going to show, it, I'll show a few pictures. Yeah. So just, I think because I was in that spot, the biggest barrier to um, following Jesus in this, what does it look like to love mm. is allegiance is that we've, we, we will have to say no to the people that we belong to or that we love or in a way from like the demands of our country. And I feel like that's what most veterans struggle with. They're like, Oh yeah, this makes so much sense. If you get there, you're like, like, I didn't care about peace until I saw war. And then Mm. I knew that like war can never give us what peace gives us. And so I work for peace because that's the world that's possible and war can never do that. So I think like it's that allegiance. We like, we have to be okay to say Jesus Jesus is a peacemaker first and like my acceptance, the second. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to see your pictures and I'm going to show you some of my pictures too. Yeah. I want to see them. So when I was in Iraq, so I was there for the whole month of March. And were you uh, in Baghdad? Uh, yeah, I was in Baghdad. And, and so this is March of 2003. And incidentally, you know, we're, we're recording this in Lent. It was also Lent there, you know, and I, and I'm, so I'm contemplating, um, what, what Jesus did and, you know, and we're there in that, that season. Um, and I, we didn't realize that it would be exactly when the bombs began to get dropped. So we went not knowing how long it would take to get in. It was really unclear. I mean, you don't announce, they didn't announce the bombing until like right before. So, um, uh, we got in and a lot of my emails and my calls and everything, my community back in Philadelphia, they, um, put them in a little like kind of booklet. My friend, Michael Bricks put these together with like reflections that I was writing back and everything. This is before social media. This is 2003 y'all. So we're doing like old school email emails and phone calls from the little lobby of our apartment building. And so I, these were there, but I brought the real thing tonight, Diane. I brought like my, my actual, I was, I got into it. I went to a scrapbooking cl- uh, club and I was the only dude there. And uh, it was totally awesome. I and love I, this. I, so, but so when we went, we, um, it might be a little hard to see, but I'll try. Um, but when we went, we, it was very difficult to get in, right? People said, you'll never get into Iraq. But the more we talked to people, we were just telling people that we are international folks, many of us from America. And we wanted to, uh, to, to document what was happening, but we wanted to volunteer in the hospitals. We wanted to stand against the war. And one thing after another happened, and we were actually, this is our VIP visa. We were eventually given like clearance in. And, uh, and so we, we drove the desert road from uh, Jordan to Iraq. And for the first few days, we were able to like be in the streets. I got me some like books and gifts. We were able to talk with people. We went to worship services. That's the old uh, money there, the dinar. And then um, uh, we we went to these worship services right before the bombing started, Diana. And one of the most powerful services I've ever been in was in this little church. I think it was St. Raphael's. And all the bishops had written a statement collectively 
that was written to Muslim folks. And it said, we want you to know that we love you and that we that violence is not the cure to violence, that Jesus taught us a different way. And they, you know, they had all this wonderful theology in there. And the whole group started singing Amazing Grace. And afterwards, I said to the bishop, I said, um, this is one of the most powerful services of my life. And then I said, um, I had no idea there were so many Christians in Iraq. And you've heard me tell the story. You know, the bishop goes, yes, uh, this is where Christianity started. And he goes, that's the Tigris River and the Euphrates, you know. And, and Shane, and so I had the same experience, like where I was tenting, yeah. straight desert, just a tent. It was next to where Abraham was born the city of Ur. And so I'm feeling so like, you know, I'm feeling so out of place. And I'm like, wait a second, this is closer to like the things that of our faith than I've ever been. I am farther away geographically my whole life. This is close, you know, and I think people forget that Christians and Muslims and Jewish people, they have always inhabited Iraq and Baghdad. Like they've been good neighbors to each other for so long so that this was devastating to them that a christian nation is going to bomb their neighbors yes and and so i mean and that's what he said next is we're praying for the christians in america to be faithful to jesus to stand against this war because what they couldn't understand is if america is a democracy like and especially many americans are christians like why can't we stop our government from this war and they would always say like we know that the American people are different from the American government, but why can't you stop your president? Don't you don't you have a voice in this? You know, and so we're like, we're trying, we're trying, you know. So that um, you know, these these were the some of the places that we went as you know, after that service, um the bombs started falling. And I remember seeing uh the missionaries of charity, Diana, Mother Teresa's sisters, they're very unmistakable. I worked with them in India, so I knew they're like blue and white saris. And so I said, oh, my gosh, you're here. You know, I said, are you missionaries of charity? And they said, yeah. And I said, I, I worked in Calcutta, India. And um, and then I said, will you be leaving when the bombs start falling? And these nuns said, of course not. The children can't leave. <laughs> they're like, we run an orphanage, so we're staying, you know. But I began to see like, you know, I mean, in one sense, we were choosing to be there, but there were all kinds of other people that this was their home. This is where they were, and they were going to stay through it. And it was everybody kept pulling together. So we had these regular, you know, worship services. We had a folk festival. We had we we saw weddings happen in the middle of the war. We because saw, they still happen. You yeah. know, like people forget that like births, weddings, birthday parties, you know, and I think that people keep forgetting. I think even for me being part of the violence, um, I want to be part of the hope because every single parent there wants a future for their kids. And when America created the, went in for the war, it destabilized a whole country that sure had its problems. But when I got there, they were like, the Americans disrupted this. And now we don't have food. We don't have water. We don't have electricity, but the the hope that I know every parent deserves to know that their kid has a bright future. Like that's what peacemaking is going to bring. We don't quit and we don't say, well, I don't know what to do now, but I have friends still there and I got to go back and visit. And like, I got to hold his kids and say like, your kid's future is, is as tied to my kid's future. And we need, we need hope and we need the love that changes this. So like 
I'm not done working for the good of Iraq. Yeah. Like not done. I want to get back to the hope, right? And in a minute, because we, you and I are both huge believers in joy and hope. And, um, but I also want to like sit for a moment and, and, um, the reality that we don't want to forget what the U S government did, because we look back, we look now at Russia and we go, this is so evil what they're doing in Ukraine, but we sometimes forget that the only country that ever dropped a nuclear bomb was the U S and we did it twice in one week in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the, the country that did 900 bombs a day was our country. Right. And those, these are a few of the places that these are heavy y'all. I'm just going to say, I mean, they're they're This is a school that we were documenting all this on purpose, right? Because as the bombs were falling, we would go and try to show what had happened. So the U.S. and coalition troops dropped a bomb on a school. They dropped a they dropped bombs on a hospital in Rupa. Um, one of those bombs fell on the children's ward of the hospital. I mean, these are you know international war crimes are also very unchristlike things are evil, terrible things. And, and so sometimes we got to remember that um, we're capable of this same uh, terrible evil. Um, this was a public market that was bombed. And I actually, we, we picked up a piece of shrapnel uh, from that bombing and, and the folks in the street there told us about 60 people died from that blast. Um, and we went to um, some of the places, we went to people's homes that were bombed, and you could see the little pieces of anti, um, there, there were uh, cluster bombs, there were bombs that are anti-personnel, they're, 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 they're they, I mean, you, you might explain it, uh, Diana, like the, the yellow bomb there is a, uh, on the front, that's an actual bomb that. And they're supposed to be illegal because they torture people as they kill them. Like it creates carnage that is unnecessary, even in bombs. Yeah. And so these were bombs that we, we saw that we were using like they, and they blow up and then they shoot bombs everywhere. And some of those bombs don't even blow up and they can be, um, and, and people said they look like food rations sometimes too. So you would go and, or a kid would find one. So it was absolutely horrible. And the, this was one of the hospitals that we visited just so that we remember, this is 20 years ago that these these children, some of them like, um, you know, four years old, 10 years old. One of the little boys had had um, I remember he had his arms amputated um, from being hit with the bombs. And uh, he said to one of the doctors, um, is it always going to be like this? Like he was wondering, basically, you know, are my arms going to come back? And I remember in that hospital, one of the doctors, it was actually this little girl, I think, that he um, that he had uh, this this little girl and he was holding her, the doctor at the uh, Almanzer Children's Hospital. And he said, as the, the planes are still flying over, he goes, this violence is for a world that has lost its imagination. Mm-hmm. He's like, violence is, is when we lose our imagination. And he said, we're praying that, uh, that leaders, that our countries would be more creative, that they would remember like other ways of resolving conflict. We tell our kids don't hurt each other, but then our countries are killing each other. He's like, it doesn't make any sense. 
So that was uh, one of the hospitals that we stayed in. And this was a, this was our encampment, Diana. Um, when the bomb started, some of the bridges were out and everything. And so we, we ended up having um, a little encampment with a few of us uh, right outside of the hospital so that we would be there um, and we wouldn't have to commute back and forth. And so um, every day we were kind of going in and out of the hospital trying to like, um, I got, I busted out some of my circus skills and, um, you know, we're doing a little like juggling and magic tricks and whatever the heck I could. But um, this is one of the kids, this is one of our presents on the street corner. This is right before the, the U.S. troops came in. This is still during the bombing. And um, that's one of the kids, he was a shoe shine boy, Diana. So he would shine shoes. And I had mostly like sandals on, but I had, I, I wrote in here that I had the, the, the shiniest uh, sandals in Baghdad because I would pay him to shine my sandals. But um, oh, there's two other pictures. This was an important one because this happened before the bombing that we're talking about, but this was the Amaria shelter. And hmm. this was a shelter that was filled with women and children. And I took these pictures when I went there. Um, they wouldn't allow men in the shelter. They wanted to make sure the women and the children were safe. And so it was packed out with women and kids. And then two smart bombs were dropped by the U.S. on that shelter and it and it killed everyone inside of it. And so you can you could see actually silhouettes on the wall from the they were trying to explain it from like the brightness of the blast would like basically brand their silhouette onto the wall. So, I mean, it's the most haunting stuff that I've ever seen. And you look at this and you go like, this was, was our own government, you know, you, you know well, and putting it in context, um, you know, like accountability matters and truth telling matters and saying you're sorry matters. Like these mm -hmm. are horrible things that happened on purpose. Nobody mm -hmm. accidentally shoots a smart bomb into a, a coordinate with women and children. And so as we look at like uh, Putin is being held accountable for his atrocities and war crimes against those in Ukraine, it's like, how do we, how do we not require that same thing of ourselves to say that those lives mattered? Yeah, it was really interesting. I heard an interview on the uh, way out here today um, with Biden and he was talking, to, they were asking him about, you know, Putin being um, charged with war crimes and by the International Criminal Court. And Biden was it was a very awkward thing because he's like, we've never actually recognized that court, you know, <laughs> because, because. Some of our leaders would be guilty of war crimes. So, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. But but yeah. I think that you're right. The truth sets us free. And that's part of what I you know, I, I thought it's so important for us to gather on this 20th anniversary to remember um, these things, but also to remember the hope. So I do have, I wanted to get back to the hope and then I'm going to pass it back to you, Diana. But this was one of those days that was tragic um, because, um, I mean, it was this mixture of hope and resilience, but this was in the middle of the bombing. And um, Amal is she's was turning 13 years old and actually her name in Arabic means hope. And so we threw our birthday party and we like had, you know, a birthday cake and we had uh, 
bubbles and balloons and all this stuff. And then the bombs started falling. And so all the adults are like, I mean, we just started the party, but we're going to have to get inside. And the kids without blinking an eye, they just, they were like, no, you don't stop the party. And they're like, we got to keep the party going. And there was no talking them out of it. I mean, they just started, you know, one of them slapped me in the head with a balloon and we kept going. And there was this like, not just like childish naivety, but this sense that like, you got to have a birthday party, no matter if there's a bombing, like the, the, our laughter drowns out the like sound of the airplanes. And as, as the kids were playing, we asked them all what she wanted for her birthday. And she said, I want peace. In fact, I think that's when one one of them drew this, you know, I want peace. And, um, and then with the smirk, you can tell her like 13 year old smirk, she goes, but if one night when no one was in my school, if one of the bombs blew it up and no one got hurt, that would be a good birthday present too. <laughs> so like, yeah, that's it. that's it. So I've got all of those, you know, kind of memories that, the, the, I mean, the ones that are so horrific that I can't get them out of my mind. But then I've also got the memories like that one or the kids that were yelling at the planes. The planes would go over, they would go, Salah! And it was like they were believing that the pilots could hear them, you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and there was I, also oh, go ahead, go ahead, you go ahead, tell me. Well, no, I'm just saying that I appreciate you saying and making space to really say that this is what our country did, because I feel like as a soldier, I've spent my whole life, um feeling like I can't say that, like I can't, I can't bear witness to the truth of what we did or the violence because there is just this code that says, if you, if you call violence, violence, and you say the U S did it, even if you saw it with your own eyeballs, then it is somehow dishonoring to veterans or dishonoring to like, I feel like there's so much allegiance that I have I have had a hard time my entire life ever just being honest about the devastation mm. about war mm. and how it harms people. And the stereotype of an American hero doesn't exist. That's a human being. And what they do to another human being matters. Mm. And they never get away from it. You know, like, how do we tell the truth on ourselves because I feel like that has been the hardest thing. And, but I feel like Iraqis deserve it. I feel like to bear witness to these true atrocities, like you can't kill people and say those people don't matter. Yeah. Um, and also to veterans to tell the truth about that. Like it's not summer camp and good things didn't happen. Like, you know, there's those moments of just being human and you can make make the best. But like it wasn't it wasn't good. Yeah. So I think I'm just grateful that you're willing to say it because I have felt like I can't say it in in most places. Well, we're all doing it together. You know, we're all doing it together. And and y'all, if you haven't read Diana's book, Waging Peace, it's incredible. So I I hope you will. Um, Well, we got a few minutes left. I I thought as you were saying this, I, 
there's two other things I, that came to my mind. One of them was this, as we were coming back into the country, um, we, of course, were facing possible charges um, for taking the medication in. And in the end, we, we did end up, some of us being taken to court, and we paid, we were fined $20,000. No one ended up with jail time, but we, for taking medication into Iraq, that's what we were fine, violating sanctions by taking medication into Iraq. So we were fined $20,000, I think it was. And Kathy Kelly, my friend, she had this great idea that we would pay it with um, Iraqi dinar. So they paid it in those $20,000 of Iraqi currency, which ended up the entire economy collapsed. So it was worth like $5. <laughs> but, right. But that, that was uh, the kind of... Uh, Thing, but but then someone, you know, people, some people called us traitors. And I'm sure, you know, you've dealt with some of that too. But I wrote this little poem as I was coming back. It's just a few lines, but, um, it, and I called it traitor with a question mark. And I said, if this bloody counterfeit liberation is American, I'm proud to be un-American. If depleted uranium bombs are American, I'm proud to be un-American. If U.S. sanctions are American, I'm proud to be un-American. If the imposed peace of Pax Americana is American, I'm proud to be un-American. But if grace and humility and nonviolence are American, I'm proud to be American. If global democracy is American, I'm proud to be American. If sharing to create a safe, sustainable world is American, then I'm proud to be American. If loving our enemies is American, I'm proud to be American. But regardless, I would die for the people of New York, but I will not kill for them. My kingdom is not of this world. I would die for the people of Baghdad, but I will not kill for them. My kingdom is not of this world. Uh, we will stand in the way of terror and in the way of war for our kingdoms, not of this world. And we pledge an allegiance deeper than nationalism to my God and my family for our kingdom is not of this world. And we will use our life to shout another world is possible for our kingdom is from another place. So I'm so grateful for you. I think you get me there, Shane, you get me there. <laughs> That's really you know, we, powerful. You know, you, it does raise the question of allegiance. And I think that's what you've dealt with, with your decision to um, that your allegiance to Christ and to love your enemy and to be a peacemaker can kind of fly in the face of some of the other allegiances that we have. And that's why I think your courage is so beautiful and remarkable. Thank you. I, I feel like the first true freedom you know as americans we sing about it we talk about it, we're raised on this like elixir of freedom right but the day the day that i took the bullets out of my weapon mm. and put it underneath my bunk was like the first time that i tasted freedom like you know they talk about that like peace that only god knows yeah i was like i had no idea how much fear goes into a false peace, how much fear yeah. has to go into allegiance because the day I put down my weapon, like freedom, like I'd never known, like flooded in. And I feel like that's, that's what's worth it. Even if you lose your life, you don't lose when you have that freedom to love. Yeah. Mm. And that's what, 
<clears throat> that's what if we if we take seriously um, the harm of war and violence, then that's the world that we want to make mm. more mm. free people, not chained to violence, not chained to false allegiances. Because Bugandi has this quote, this quote that I love, and it says, I object to violence because when it appears to do good, the good is only temporary. Mm. Evil it does is permanent. Mm. Wow. That's a good one. That's a good one. Well, I, I, I want to give you a chance to give any closing words, too. But, uh, you know, a lot of folks know um, the story you know, of us leaving Iraq. So I'm, I'm just going to, um, I just share it really briefly because it, it changed um, so much of our life, you know, as we were leaving Iraq after, and it's still in the middle of the bombing. So like a bunch of our team stayed and a handful of us uh, left, including Jonathan and Leah Wilson Hartgrove, who incidentally were on their honeymoon in Baghdad during the war. They had just gotten married and discerned together that it was the right thing to do. So they went and um, we were all, you know, leaving Iraq together. And, you know, this is also, as I'm thinking back, it was one of those things where they call it the thin spaces, right? Where it's like the 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 supernatural kind of heavenly realm and the earthly realm are get really thin and close. One of the things I remember is there was this crazy dust storm through the desert and then it started raining. So I don't branch out from my white shirts too much. So I had a white shirt on, of course, um, in the desert. And I'm going into this prayer meeting and the raindrops were falling from the sky and gathering the dust. And so our shirts look like it looked like heaven was bleeding. I mean, they were speckled with that red um, desert dust. And then in that meeting, it was almost it was approaching Easter. And I remember this vision. That. Uh, there's not a lot of minutes of times that I've had these like kind of <laughs> like, you know, visions or dreams in my head. But I this is one of the clearest ones I ever had, Diana, was it was this big, giant body of Jesus hovering over what seemed to be like this Baghdad, the city of Baghdad. And then there were whips that were being landed on Christ, but it was Jesus's body was protecting the city. And then the whips had the sound of the bombs. And it was like Jesus's body was just hovering over the city of Baghdad. And so there were those, all those things like those are all going through my head. And then, you know, we we, we prayed and decided that we were going to leave Iraq. Um, and we as we were leaving Baghdad, um, I mean, you didn't know how you were going to get gas either because you're in the middle of the desert. Everything, like all the gas stations were bombed. Cars are on fire. That's on um, purpose. Yeah. So <laughs> we met these group of students. Actually, a bunch of them, I think, were from Sudan, but they were studying in Baghdad and they had a van and we pull up this gas station. There's no gas. The whole gas station is bombed out. And so they figured out a way to hook the car battery up to the gas pump and pump not just their gas, but all of our gas. It's also free, but um, we pumped our cars up and that's how we got out. So we, we kept driving, but then it was shortly after that, that we hit something in the, the road. And um, 
Um, I mean, some folks think it was probably one of the cluster bombs or some unexploded um, device. And it flipped, our car flipped over and we were all injured. And um, and the first car, we get everybody to the side of the road and two of my friends are very badly injured. And the first car that we see coming down the road rescues us. And uh, these Iraqi guys jump out and they embrace us. And as you know, you know, this story, we will go into the little town of root buds, like a little town, 20,000 people or something. And um, these Iraqi doctors who had just had their hospital bombed, um, they set up a little shanty clinic and they saved our lives. They saved two of my friends' lives. And, um, and I remember, um, you know, thinking we need to thank them. So I tried to get a bunch of money together and give it to them. And, and I said, we want to say thank you. And the, and the doctor goes, then just say thank you. He says, we don't want your money. All we want is for you to know that we love you. And you can tell the story of what we did for you. And we hope that if you found us on the side of the road, you would do the same thing. So that story, that's my last memory, you know, coming out of, of Iraq. And of course, that town of Rupa um, was so important to us that it inspired the name for the Rupa house uh, in Durham and North Carolina, where Jonathan and Leah, you know, helped found that. Beautiful. And, so, but I think, you know, now I read the Good Samaritan story with a really different set of eyes, you know, and, um, and so I, you know, I say all that to say, like, that's the kind of stuff that we need to, to be practicing is, um, while my country bombed their hospital and decimated their town, our little car had a wreck on the side of the road and these Muslim Iraqi doctors, um, showed us the most powerful, I think, love right. I've ever felt. Yeah. Right. Um, so I know we got to go, but That's I just okay. go share, ahead. Go ahead. share my last story. Um, so I had that kind of the same experience. I want to show you um, yeah, yeah, yeah. a little picture. So this is, uh, you can read this book for Lent y'all, but there's some pictures in the middle and the picture right here is of a, a, a villager her name's Om Hassan, and that baby is a miracle baby. Mm. Um, and she was the one who invited me into her home, and like she was the one who showed me Jesus's like posture, like the way he loved us while we are yet still his enemies on the cross. Like, mm. so this Middle Eastern brown Muslim woman is the one who like showed me Jesus. And um, like, she's my family and she's the one who I feel like really changed my life in Iraq. And this little baby, I don't know if you can see him, but his name is uh, Ibrahim because about every third baby is named, <laughs> it's like Abraham, but Ibrahim. Um, but anyways, this baby was sick and she brought him to me and through like nobody wanted to give this baby medical care, but he was sick. And I remember petitioning each sergeant I had. I was like, this baby, and, and, and it's a rule in war and as a medic that if life, limb, or eyesight is in danger, whether it's for an American soldier or anyone, an enemy, a civilian, we have to give them care. Mm. But each person said no. Like, Every sergeant turned me down. 
And they kept saying no, but I was you know, like, but I remember fighting for the life of that baby. And once we got through all of the checks, all of the checkpoints, which like they did not want this woman with her flowy, like they were like, no, like every single one, like we prayed, we prayed. I prayed the baby in my chest would keep breathing. I prayed that the checkpoint, the soldiers at the checkpoint would see my friend Om Hassan and let her through despite all the reasons that I knew they already thought she didn't deserve to get through. She was dangerous. But once this baby's life was saved, like when there is life in the middle Mm. of death, like I felt like all of our hopes were tied up in Mm. this one life. And we brought this baby back um, to the village. And, you know, I remember sitting there and all of a sudden people started passing around the baby and they're, they're praying, they're spraying perfume in my hair and putting rings on my finger. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like those bottle stories. Remember <laughs> when mm. they said they would like put perfume people and put rings on their fingers. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's real. So I think these thin moments where like we choose to stand up for each other and we choose to be the worldwide family of God that says like, we will fight for each other's babies and we'll put our love on the line and our lives on the line. Like that's when we get to see, see the thing that nobody believes is possible, which is mm. peace. Mm. And just cause you shared that one story about uh, having that vision. I don't tell, I've never told anybody this, but there's this one photo right there, that sunset. And that's yeah. like Mark 19 on top of a Humvee. And we're rolling through the desert. And this was kind of like my life for over a year. Yeah. But when I was standing on top of there at like sunset, all of a sudden, I just like had this little thing where you're like, I don't know. But I just saw this kind of like angel or something but i saw there was like a sword in the sand with blood and Mm. i felt like god was like there is healing to come and Mm. i yes there is violence and the bloody sword here but like i'm here too diana Mm. and like i don't know why i needed to hear that or see that for me to know like violence is always bloody and the sword is always wrong but there was this bright whiteness at the same time that I just remember that being a turning point of like mm. recognizing the both and and the hope um, and that there was more to come. As much as I was seen, I would see, mm. I would see healing too. Mm. So, wow. uh, yeah. And there's yeah. like no real caption underneath there. I didn't say anything about it, but like, if there's only like seven photos, it was really important to me. And this is another family. Um, and they were some of my friends. They were actually all the daughters and granddaughters of Om Hassan. And they had suffered under Saddam Hussein yeah. and little girls running towards us. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I think that there's so much to witness, but there's so much more freedom that we get. Yeah. We acknowledge the violence and we have to decide um, what's worth it. You know, what's worth living for and then what's worth dying for. Heck yeah. Well, I couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine a, a um, better way to honor this sort of somber anniversary than this conversation and I'm so glad you all could 
listen in or listen to the recording. It was pretty, a little bit spontaneous. I look like I've been on a plane all day because I've been on a plane all day, but we really wanted to do this because 20 years ago um, was a terrible time for a lot of people. And now we we're, we're alive to be interrupters of violence and hatred to stand up for love and to stand against everything that's crushing people's lives. And I'm so glad I get to do this work with Diana and so many others of you. Um, so let's recommit ourselves um, on this anniversary of the shock and all bombing of Baghdad to say, we're going to, we're going to be a force for life and for love. And we're going to stand against violence and whenever somebody declares the next war none of us are going to show up we're going to we're going to show up to stand against it and um and we need courage you know we need courage yeah. even right now to be asking what is what does courage look like when when we see the, the the courage that people have for violence and hatred what does it look like to match that courage with love and and grace so yeah yeah good word well, thank as we close, it. yeah, thank you. So this is, we're going to send you out to, uh, it's going to be a little hard to hear, but my buddy Scotty heard the kids in Iraq singing. So this is a good closing, I think. Um, they were singing in Arabic, but it was the the beautiful, spiritual, we shall overcome. Uh, so this is uh, the kids in Iraq singing to us as we leave. Thank you all for Nahnu namshi adan biyad Nahnu lasna khaifin Nahnu lasna khaifin Nahnu lasna khaifin We shall overcome. Bless y'all. Thanks, Diana. Thank you for being here, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.